Hello, you're listening to the Let's Talk Future podcast series presented by Oppenheimer. If you're interested in the economy, markets, and investing in general, you've come to the right place. This series was created to fascinate and enlighten every type of investor. Curious about the latest consumer trends? How about innovations in healthcare or technology? The Let's Talk Future series definitely has you covered. Through timely and relevant conversations, we deliver some of the best thought leadership in the financial services industry. Our renowned hosts and guests explore big questions and big ideas and leave you with actionable insights. In this episode, our featured guest is Jim Cullen, Chairman and CEO of Schaefer Cullen Capital Management. And our host is Peter Cataray, Managing Director and Head of Sales and Marketing of Oppenheimer Asset Management. This episode was recorded on July 24, 2023. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to this episode of Oppenheimer's Let's Talk Future podcast. I'm your host, Peter Cataray, and I'm excited to be back hosting my 10th episode of this series. Today, I'm honored and excited to welcome one of the true legends of the investment world to our podcast, Jim Cullen. Jim founded Schaefer Cullen Capital Management in 1983 as one of the real trailblazers in value investing. Under Jim's leadership and with his partners, the firm has grown into one of the most highly regarded and successful value-focused independent firms in the world. Schaefer Cullen Capital Management is a longstanding partner of the Oppenheimer Asset Management team. And I've known Jim for well over a decade and have enjoyed every chance I've gotten to speak with him. Jim is a former naval officer serving aboard the USS Essex. He's a true market historian, having learned the core elements of value investing, really from its big bang moment in 1974, when Ben Graham gave his famous speech about analyzing stocks for the long term. He's a prolific writer and author, and his quarterly notes, which are available on the Schaefer Cullen website, or on every important desk on Wall Street. His most recent book, The Case for Long-Term Value Investing, is a must-read for any serious market participant. So, Jim, it's my pleasure to welcome you to our podcast. Thank you, Peter, very much. We appreciate you being here. And so I read your book in an afternoon. I was really impressed with how clearly and concisely you summarized the case for, as the book is titled, The Case for Long-Term Value Investing. So I'm going to take full advantage of the author being here today and and really dig into some of the overarching points that, that I think were so great in the book. And so let's jump right in. Your book starts with a great summary of the last hundred years of market activity, really decade by decade, looking at the booms and the busts, really going back to the 1920s. And it's filled with incredible examples of how the smart money seemed to get it wrong during a lot of those periods. So let me start just by asking, why do you think it's it's so difficult to invest and why does the smart money seem to get it wrong so often? That's why when we started the book, we said, here's the investment strategy, which makes all the sense in the world. However, the market doesn't make any sense at all most of the time. So we said, before we present the strategy, let's review the history and let the investor know how volatile this whole thing is. So we decided to put the history in front of the strategy. And what you see is that the volatility is just phenomenal. You forget how volatile it is. And uh, but when you go through those first hundred years, you look at the say, can I really invest in this crazy business? And then we point out that you can, because if you use the strategy, despite all the volatility, you're going to come out all right. And as Ben Graham said, he said, you follow the strategy. He says, you're disciplined and you're a long-term investor. You can really forget everything else. You can forget recessions, bear markets, 
and stick with that and you don't have to worry. Well, you point out four or five examples that are incredible in that section too of, of how wrong sort of the media and the, and the investor sentiment is at some of those inflection points, right? All the way from the 70s where, you know, it really looked like the market was in very difficult shape and the economist had the, the, the famous title that just said help and it indicated a great, a great buying opportunity in a market bottom all the way up through some of the excitement around the FANG stocks and other things. So it's clear that discipline is a core to, to being a successful investor and sort of ignoring the, the noise, right? Yep. We have quite often people say, well, if you give me one piece of paper <laughs> that helped me out, what, what can you give me? And we have a study of recessions in bear markets going back to 1968. And if you take all the five-year periods, but Ben Graham said, by the way, it's a long-term. We said, well, long-term is something people can't really identify with. So we said, if you use a five-year time horizon, that's long enough to smooth performance. So anyway, use all the five-year periods, 1968 to the present. And if you take every single five-year period, look at what happened to the market recessions and bear markets. Every single five-year period, it's some negative stuff going on. And it wasn't pretty. And you go through the whole period, there's like 15 periods and every single one, despite all the bad news, the uh, bottom 20% of stocks, the value stocks were up in every single five-year period. So the answer there was, as long as you're disciplined and you know you stay smooth it out over a five-year time period, you know, as Graham said, you can forget everything else. You just mentioned something, Jim, in your response. You, you, you mentioned recession for the first time and, and so let's look back at that period. So if you look back at that last hundred years, there have been multiple recessions. Which of those periods sort of remind you potentially of the environment we're in, if in fact you believe we're in a, a potential or a recessionary environment? Well, hopefully it's not like the one when, uh, you know, when I started. When I started in 1965 and the market was hot and I was a millennial. Yep. And, Trading uh, the meme stocks. I know, Jim, that's what you were doing. <laughs> We had a guy named Charlie Plone. They called him Two Day Charlie. He was doing new issues every day, two of those new every day on some silly stuff that made no sense at all. Makes the mean thing look uh, similar. <laughs> but anyway, that whole period actually was worse than today in a way. But I was in the office on Wall Street and uh, 44 Broad Street, which right alongside the stock exchange. Every day at noontime, our office was filled with people, investors. And they were cheering for stocks as they went across the board. And it was, I said, this is the greatest thing in the world. I've been sitting on an aircraft carrier, managing a little money and saying, you know, everything goes up. What's this? What's, this is great business. It's not only fun, but it's profitable. So I started off in that office on, on Wall Street. And 1968, Marcus 665 was when I started. 1968, there was an article in the New York Times magazine, New York Times front front page, Dow approaches a thousand for the first time. The Dow keeps making new highs as you go along over history. And thousand for the first time was a big round number. And there's a photograph of myself and two of the other brokers there from Merrill Lynch. And it shows behind me, there's a plexiglass keeping the crowd from spilling over on top of the brokers. <laughs> and, and it's going to go on like this forever, right? It'll be like this forever. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that was the end. And Indicator Digest. The guy wrote an article, a headline. He said, the ballroom is on fire, but they're still dancing inside. <laughs> Remember that? 
I thought that was funny at the time. And we would have never guessed between 1968, when that market article that came out in the paper, to 75, market was basically down 50% over that seven year period. And it's inconceivable today that something like that could happen. You got earnings driving and dividends, what have you. And little do we know, meanwhile, by 75, all those offices were closed down. Brokers were all let go. 50% of all the firms, at least 50, disappeared. And there was a disaster. Wall Street was deserted. It went from a really, you know, party scene to completely deserted. 10 years later, we did a study on that period. And we said, you know, what happens? What happened to earnings during that period? Actually, earnings went up. We said, what happened to the value stocks during that period? Actually, that period, that five-year or seven-year period, value, the value stocks went up. So 1970, 1960, 68, 68 to 75, that horrible period. Actually, the market was up almost 1,000%. The bottom 20% of stocks on a PE basis. We had no idea that was going on. Because what happened is during that period, even though the Dow was flat for 15 years, between 1965 and 1982, 83, when you went through, finally broke through a thousand. That was like 15 years. You have a great graph in your book on that particular period. And it's amazing that if you look point to point, you would say, well, not much happened during that period of time. But then when you look, there were peak to trough drawdowns that were over 50%. There was tremendous volatility during that period when, quote, not much happened. So that's, that's an interesting point. Right. Oh, yeah, in 68, you had the blow off of the speculations. Yeah, the uh, conglomerates were the big stocks. Nobody even knows what conglomerates are anymore. But then you came back and you made the nifty 50 with all the great stocks, Eastman Kodak, IBM, Xerox, and those. And then they broke when they got too overpriced. Similar, that's where it's most similar today in that once any group of stocks becomes such a large part of the index, that historically has been a warning signal. And that's certainly the environment right now with and that's where we are right now. So that's, that's the thing that's similar. You never, markets never play out the same way and you never know when things are going to run a lot further, but that's what, in fact, on a market letter we put, we entitled it, we said the danger zone and the danger zone though, winds up being a good period for value investors on a relative basis. And again, Jim, your most recent market letter is available to, for those interested at the Schaefer Cullen website and they can, they can access your market letter there as well. So. Let's shift gears into what I thought was the, an incredible part, the second section of your book, which is really about your approach to value investing, right? And you talk about good value investors have two very important characteristics, their discipline and their long-term investors. And, and let's start with that first. You have a great line that you suggest the Achilles heel of investors has always been overpaying for future growth or following what's popular. That seems like a, a very common sense thing, but it things that investors generation after generation seem to chase what's hot and, and sort of maybe ignore the price and some of those things. So talk a little bit about that. How do you get that discipline as an investor? Again, because it's current right now, what we're talking about uh, in our market letter, we pointed out why do these stocks are so great? I mean, IBM was the greatest thing in the world when it was 1973. Right. RCA was the greatest thing in 1929. Nobody had radios. 
and uh, the stock went down 90%. IBM, we bought IBM. Well, IBM was peaked in 73. 10 years later, it was 10 times earnings with a 5% dividend yield. Recently, um, the uh, tech bubble, Microsoft, and uh, those two, and 2000, it was like 35, 40 times earnings. 2012, you could buy the stock at 10 times earnings with a 3 or 4% dividend yield, which we bought. We still have the stock. We made 1,000% on our money from that point. So what's going on today? Well, what causes that? What happens is the big companies, strong companies, they take out all the competitors. And then they're left alone. And then they get into each other's businesses. And what you're seeing is that with Netflix, Netflix had a wide open market. Everybody thought they were going to dominate that. Nobody would even try to compete with them. Guess who's competing with them? Apple, CBI, everybody and his brother's competing with them. The new uh, article in the Financial Times by the director of uh, Oppenheimer, the uh, movie. And he said, what's going on is everybody needs these big movies now because the streamers are all these things. They're killing each other. Nobody's making any money. So that's what happens. They all get in each other's businesses. And eventually that erodes the uh, margins. And that's why it takes so long. You know, you always have this, maybe this time it's going to be different. Probably not. You're probably, you're starting to see some Apple's trying to get in every, everybody's business right now because they realize they really haven't been able to grow that company that much the last three or four years. And so they need to grow. They're all the same way. All these big companies are the same way. Well, that kind of brings us, you mentioned Apple's growth over the last few years, and that kind of brings us to a second point that you mentioned, being a long-term investor is critical to, to being a successful investor. And I know that that's a difficult thing today, right? People think in sound bites, they, you know, write in 120 character thoughts and long-term is, you know, you mentioned a, a five-year window as being appropriate. Is that what you think is an appropriate time? And how do you build that long-term discipline or long-term perspective into today's investor? Yeah, we started off in the beginning. As we went along, we realized that the five-year time period was enough of a cushion to give you enough you know, to, you know, time to sort of make the investments. Ten years is even better, of course, but five years is something people can identify with more. So you look back over time, you look at the, the numbers, we spell this out in the book. We have, number one, we have all the disciplines. Price earnings, price to book, and dividend yield. Well, those three disciplines is what Graham mentioned. So we have all those for the last, since 1968, and how it gives you an edge on the market. Then we break it down by the rolling five-year returns on all of those also. And then later on, we, do, we also have the 10-year also for the I-dividend strategy. Dividends wind up being, although it's not the primary, it's wound up being a bigger deal because what happens is dividends give you more downside protection. So what we realize that, you know, in a market which is selling at 20 times earnings and you have a huge amount of government debt out, how a lot of this stuff's going to play out, you don't know. So having dividends are important. So we did a study a while back and for the last 70 years, you've had 12 recessions. Dividends for the S&P 500, every single one, have gone up. I found that hard to believe. We originally did the earnings. We said stocks go up because earnings go up. And you look at earnings and track earnings in the market and they go up together. The only thing, the earnings thing is sort of, you know, broken. 
But then we said, let's do the same thing for dividends. It's smoother line. So he said, well, how's that different recessions? Turned out every single one. I was shocked because we talked about 1970s, 1970, 75, that period. I said, the market was down 50%. Earnings were down 50%. Stocks were down 50%. What happened to dividends? Went right up for that period. I was shocked at that. So dividends give you a cushion, especially in the U.S. where the Europeans tend to be, had been different, and they adjust the uh, dividends to earnings. Earnings were down 25%. But the U.S. has been more of a religion towards maintaining that dividend yield. So as, as investors, you want to make sure you know, there's a payout ratio there so that if you get a tough market, you know, they don't have to, you know, dig into earnings to cover the dividend. You mentioned a tough market, Jim, and one of the other great points you make in the book, and you use a great term that you dub the silent killer of market timing. You know, if you're going to be a disciplined investor, you have to do it through all cycles. And you talk a lot about examples of people who have tried to time the market or have made decisions at inflection points in the market where a lot of the damage is done in terms of, you know, making decisions that hurt long-term performance. So Talk to us a little bit about your thoughts on market timing and some of the things you've learned along the way about the difficulties of doing that. We gave you know, about five examples in the book about the, the dangers of market timing. And one of them was, which people can identify with a lot easier, uh, two very well-known clients of ours started on the same day. It was like 20 years ago now. And uh, well, so we checked. Uh, one of them would come in once a year and have lunch and never change the account portfolio. The other periodically, like after 9-11, went 25% of the cash and different, maybe five or six different moves over the 20 years. Difference of performance was the account that made some changes was up 500%. The account that didn't make any changes was up 1,500%. I was shocked at the difference because there weren't that many changes. But I think what, what I found recently and discovered recently, I think, the recessions in bear markets is where this market timing gets you. You always, if I, can, if I know we're gonna get a recession or bear market, I can time that, get out and get back in at a certain time, which is impossible to do because getting back in while it looks on a chart may look like it's a short period of time, that short period may be a year. So there's a lot of choppiness that goes on. But the difference is the bounce coming out of a recession or a bear market is huge. And the two years, one or two years after that, in fact, someone did a study that if you took all the, uh, over the last 60 years, if you took all the recent bounces from the recessions out of the market, the market would have had no return at all. So all that bounce. So you had to catch, turns out, you have to be in the game to catch that bounce. So it doesn't try to be clever and be out a little bit earlier and back in and what have you. That doesn't work. So. All the examples you use, one after another, come back to the same thing. I mean, people like playing the market. Everybody thinks they can outsmart the market. You know, I still I was a broker for 20 years before I was an advisory business. And the smarter guys, especially engineers and doctors, what have you, hey, let me try this. You know, everybody, everybody takes a shot at trying to quasi-time the market. So I want to circle back to something you also mentioned in previous topics about being a dividend oriented investor. You believe a lot in the return of free cash flow in the form of a dividend is a, is a critical component to your investment selection. 
many clients that we speak with at Oppenheimer are concerned about a pending recession and the effects that might have on corporate balance sheets. You've written a lot about it, but what's your opinion of the state of dividends in the U.S. right now, the health of corporate balance sheets, and how investors should think about dividends and their dividends going into a recession? Well, I don't think it's any different now than it has been the last, you know, 12 or 13 recessions, really. You know, for corporations, uh, there's been times when it's been a much worse environment. As an investor, you want to make sure the payout ratio, the amount being paid out in dividends, is not a big, too big of a chunk of the earnings. And uh, if you look at a lot of companies, it's 20% payout ratio. So they got plenty of room to, to grow it. And like, I'm, I'm not a big fan of buybacks. I mean, I think companies will be paying down debt and increasing the dividends, what they ought to be doing. And uh, they're, they're the ones we prefer. I, I have to ask, Jim, we've danced around the topic. So do you think we're going to have a recession, in your opinion? Or I guess it doesn't matter as a value investor, right? Right? You don't care. Yeah, I don't care. Yeah, it doesn't make any difference. I had a meeting a couple of years ago talking about an economic recession. And they said, well, Australia, they went 25 years without having a recession. I said, get out of here. I don't believe that. I went back and checked, and they did, because Australia was benefiting from China, demands in China. So they went 25 years without a recession. I said, well, how about the stock market? So if you had superimposed the stock market, the US stock market and the, and the Australian stock market together, their market corrections were even worse than ours over that same 20 years period. So maybe the government can hold off a recession but the bear markets are going to come on their own because stocks get overpriced and all that they correct. So I want to, I want to cover a, a couple other points that you make that I think are so important in the book. And one of them is about corporate management. And you talk a lot about specific managers and, and, and CEOs and C-suite executives that, that you think have provided a great catalyst to buy stocks over the last several years. But I kind of want to ask a more general question. What's your opinion of management in general today? Is there sufficient experience of how to manage companies through a recession? And you mentioned some of the greats like Jamie Dimon and others. You know, are there many Jamie Dimons out there running companies in America today? That's much more, you know, I mean, what you have is it used to be maybe you have 10 analysts following a company. Now you probably have 40 analysts. So these guys can really, you know, have a narrow window as far as what they can do. So there's a lot of pressure on management to deliver. So managers still always trying to deliver, you know, earnings and dividends and what have you. So they're really under scrutiny. It's harder to find good management. Where good management becomes important is in small mid-cap names. I tell our small cap guys you should be out in the car all the time and go out and eyeball these guys. And you find out when you sit down with somebody, that makes a difference. Uh, you get a meeting with Jamie Dimon or somebody at, you know, one of the big companies, you're not going to learn that much. Right. You know, you just got a feeling whether you trust or not. But I mean, well, small companies can really still have a big difference. That's a great point. Just, just the opportunity for management to have a bigger impact and a, and a bigger thumbprint on the company. Right. Yeah. Right. So another point you make in the book that I think is just incredible, it's really a section entitled When It Doesn't Work, which I think is a real recognition of the humbling nature of, of what we do and investing in general. But on a day-to-day -day basis, you have a number of portfolio managers that work for you. You've, you've taught a lot of people how to be stock pickers and analysts. How do you teach a portfolio manager to handle a mistake or when they get a position wrong? Well, that's always going to happen. You have a, we have 30 stocks in our portfolio. There's always going to be a problem with a couple. We did one study, and we've had some, we've had some screw-ups. 
<laughs> we did a study on all the stocks that we sold for losses over a 10 year, 15 year period of time. Turns out, and quite often near the end of the year, you have a stock in there that you're sick of looking at, you know, the customer's sick of looking at it and you sell it out. 75% of the time, we should have bought more and not sold. And so therefore you gotta be critical about not being too anxious to sell something or you wanna make a good swap of it, nothing else. The one exception is if there's a lot of debt, then just run. Right. <laughs> then right. <sell> them. <laughs> Where we've gotten mistakes we've made is reached a little bit too much for dividend yield. You know, I mentioned some of the some of the examples in the book. And it's usually because you you're trying to fit a stock in something and maybe there's a little more debt than you like, but the story sounds exciting, but the debt catches you. That's the biggest risk. Usually it's the, the, uh, the overextended companies, the over, overextended management, aggressive management. It's too aggressive. This is what can't get you wrong. What about on the other side? What about when you get it right? When, when you buy a position, is it typically a price-based sell target or is there some fundamental indicator? You know, I had one of the original partners I met at Oppenheimer a long time ago say something great to me was that, you know, anybody can buy a stock, but it takes a pro to sell it. And that's always stuck with me. And I've thought that was a, gr a great thing. How do you train someone to, to take a, a winner and take, take capital off the table? In theory, what we recommend is we say, okay, we're looking to buy stocks, the bottom 20% of whatever universe it is. That's not just the S&P. We just go, you know, value line and uh, Bloomberg, what have you. So we're focusing on stocks there where we can get a story. So there's three parts to it. We said, number one, where valuations make sense. There's a lot of stocks that valuations look good. But then, you know, is there any kind of a story there? That's the second part. The third part is you're trying to get companies that are out of favor. If you can do the three, those three things, I call that a three-point fix in the Navy ad when the carrier came into the harbor. And if you get three fixes, you're safe no matter what the weather was. As long as you stay in the world, you know, and let's say you have one fix would be valuation, two story, three out of favor. You get those three fixes, you're the best stocks you've had in the past have been the, where all those three things qualified. Jim, I'm just, I'm curious when you, when you make that description, something that pops to my mind is, is the discussion about the opportunity in international markets. Do, do you see certainly out of favor, certainly an interesting story and maybe value? Do you, do you think there's really an increasing opportunity to look through a value lens at the developed markets outside of the U.S. for opportunity? I had some, I got one interview. Somebody said to me, he says, you spent five years on an aircraft carrier, what have you. What'd you learn there as it applies to Wall Street? I never thought much about it. I said, well, when I started on Wall Street, it was pretty US centric. And the fact that you travel around and you become more internationally orientated. I said, the first stock, one of the first stocks we bought was Jaguar, which is a British company, which was a spinoff from British Leland. It was a great story. Had all the character, five times earnings. Manager, you know, the, the the CEO was a new guy who we got to know really well, and he did a phenomenal job. And we, so then we found that when we started the high dividend strategy, we had a hard time getting enough names that you had interesting dividend growth stories as well as dividend yields. But if we included the international stocks, the ADRs, that let us dramatically increase the number of stocks we could pick from.
So we used to say within our portfolio, we don't, we don't want to do any more than 20% ADRs or international. But in the beginning, we always had roughly 20%. Right now, the international look, look very, very interesting. We're underweighted right now, the international. But the work I'm doing right now with our research director is uh, three or four, half the name, more than half the names are international names right now. Interesting. Good management, good business lines, good fundamentals, and excellent. I think the key takeaways from our conversation today were number one, to be a disciplined investor and to invest for the long term. Number two, to really understand the power of dividends. And number three, understand the valuation, the story, and don't be afraid to look at what's out of favor as an investor. Jim, thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Future. We know your podcast listening options are endless, so we're glad you're spending time with us. Don't miss out on our next episode, and remember to subscribe today. Join our community to expand your thoughts on business, the markets, and the dynamic forces affecting them. It's time to talk future.